The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, you rockheads, put down that book on subliminal persuasion and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 232 with guest Jeff Atwood, recorded live Thursday, April 19th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bringing the just-in-time team system class with Joel Semeniuk on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the plopping man responsible for every plopping plop in the plopping show today, Carl Franklin. Thank you, thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Thursday. This is the Thursday show. I'm Carl Franklin here in uh, New London, Connecticut at Pop Studios, Pop Central, and uh, Richard on Pop Campus West out there in Vancouver, British Columbia. Richard Campbell, how are you? Here I am on the left coast, making shows as fast as I can, run as radio, going like crazy. Yeah, we're at show number three this week. Uh, Yesterday's show was awesome. Just good stuff. Uh, Dana Epp, who's a local guy, I've met him before, he's here in in the Lower Mainland. We just had a really good time. I think it came across the show, we were laughing most of the time. And it's good. It's uh, it's good to get that IT perspective, you know, as a developer. We, we've done a lot of IT-focused shows, but but you guys really take it to a new level. Well, and talking about card space, too, which we already did. We talked to Kim Cameron on .NET Rocks about card space from a right. programmer's point of view. Totally different context to talk about from an IT point of view, what yep. card space means. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, speaking of uh, stuff that we talk about every week, we talk about emails. We, yes. read, we read emails, that is. And here's one that came in from Bill Ayers. Uh, the subject is the .NET Rocks fitness plan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Here we go. Hi, Carl and Richard. I have been listening to .NET Rocks for a very long time, so no need to suck up. Nice. A couple of things. Number one, in show number 225 with Dan Appleman, there was a discussion about early microcomputer systems, and you asked listeners to beat the system he described, which only had 16K of memory. The first computer I owned I designed and built myself using a National Semiconductor SCMP microprocessor. The S stands for simple. And it had a tiny instruction set by modern standards. In fact, it was possible to memorize all the opcodes and programming machine code without reference to the manual. 
I had two 256 by 4 bit static RAM chips. That's right, kids. 256 bytes of memory. Not 256 kilobytes or megabytes. Just 256 bytes. Can you beat that? <laughs> I can. At school, I used a computer built as a project which used discrete transistors, switches, and filament bulbs and had 16 8-bit bytes of memory. Brilliant. That would have taken up a lot of room, too, because it was just all discrete hardware. So each one of the bits would have probably taken up the better part of a square inch. Oh, my God. That's insane. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uncle. Uncle. All right. Number two, you keep reading out letters about this or that person who listens to DNR while running, cycling, swimming, the Atlantic, climbing Mount Everest, (laughs) etc. After reading the letter, you say, that's amazing, blah, blah, blah. We're sending you a container load of DNR swag because your letter is so original. (laughs) I would just like to point out that I was the first to draw attention to the .NET Rocks fitness program way back in show number 120 with Sanjay Parthasarathe, where you kindly read my letter and from which I scored zero swag. Two shows a week is great news. I'm adjusting my training schedule accordingly. Best regards, Bill. Dr. Bill Ayers uh, from Flow Simulation LTD in Sheffield, England. That's flowsim.com. Give you some props there, Doc. And uh, yes, I'm sorry. You know, some we're you know we don't have a swag rule program here. You know, <laughs> sometimes it slips our mind, and I, I'm sorry. Obviously, he needs a hoodie. I'm going to send you a container full of swag, all right? We're going to send you a pallet. A pallet load. Dude, you are going to have to build a new room for the swag that we're going to send you. (laughs) All right? You've out-geeked us, and you've outclassed us. Totally. Congratulations. I got an email as well, although not quite as intense, a little more technical. It says, hi, guys. I was just listening to your show with Oren Eni. Great stuff as always. I've used RhinoMox a lot, and I quite like it for what it achieves. However, I'm of the opinion that we shouldn't need RhinoMox or TypeMock or whatever at all. I think unit testing should be a platform service. That is, the CLR itself has intrinsic support for unit testing and all that it entails. All of these unit testing frameworks have limitations that come about by the lack of platform support for unit testing. I have found these limitations extremely frustrating, and I often have to spend too much time unit testing a piece of code, or I have to skip unit testing of that code altogether. Suppose unit testing was a platform service. It might be possible to run the CLR in a special unit test mode, which accompanies all of the necessities for unit testing. Unrestricted comprehensive automatic mocking, unrestricted access to the code under test from the unit test code, access to private members, for example, and so on. Hmm. Obviously, a lot of thought would have to be put into this if it was ever going to be implemented, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts on this. Kind regards, Kent Burgart. Kent, you blew my mind. You want to hear my thoughts? I think I need a nap. That's what I... <laughs> now, this is something I have been thinking about in the sense of, you know, the CL... It seems silly to me that the CLR that's loaded on the client machine is the same CLR that we're running on our dev machines. Now, obviously, they need to be similar, but there really ought to be a debug version. I mean, what he's talking about makes sense in the sense that there ought to be an instrumentation harness over top of the CLR. Yeah. 
so that we know more as developers. And, and you know, rightly so, it should be standardized. I mean, to have it come in the box would be really wonderful. Just to guarantee you know, sort of minimum standards for everything. Right. So interesting thought, Kent. Yep. Uh, we can't do anything about it. Well, wish I could. But we'll pass it along to Microsoft. How about that? And they can ignore us instead of you. And I think we just did. <laughs> That's true. All right. Well, let's get on to our announcements. The conferences, DevTeach and TechEd. DevTeach up in Montreal, of course. DevTeach.com. Yes. And that's May 14th to the 18th. Yep. And uh, beautiful place, beautiful uh, conference, very small, very intimate. A nice way to uh, powwow with the, with the talent, as And it we'll were. be there. Yep. And we're doing the RM Smackdown. The RM Smackdown. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, also, Tech Ed, June 4th through 8th. We're going to be all over that conference, walking Indeed. around, doing stuff. I think we're going to do the quiz show there, right? Yeah, we're looking at the quiz show, uh, talking about some kind of variation on Speaker Idol. Still working out the details on that. Yep. And, of course, we're going to be recording lots of shows from the floor. Yeah. Uh, and we're discussing a panel as well. That will be a show. And that's June 4th to 8th, Orlando, your favorite place in the world. Okay, get your pencil. Here comes the code camps. The Twin Cities Code Camp. Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, of course. Rocky Lotka is going to be there. You can guarantee that. April 28th. Uh, you can read about it. Shrinkster.com slash O9D. There's also the Calgary Code Camp up here in the Great White North. Also April 28th. That's this weekend at Shrinkster.com slash O9F. We're talking about the Ann Arbor Day of .NET. Ann Arbor, Michigan, May 5th. Shrinkster.com slash C-U-K. And also May 5th is the Austin Code Camp in Austin, Texas, one of my favorite places. Great music. Shrinkster.com slash O-9-E. That's also May 5th. The West Michigan Day of .NET, May 19th. Shrinkster.com slash N-I-H. And finally, June 23rd, the Rally Code Camp at Shrinkster.com slash O. One seven Rally, North Carolina, June twenty third. Of course, uh, the .NET uh, New York tour is still going on. Greg Brill's looking for you, a talented .NET developer, if you want to spend a year in New York City and uh, live uh, rent free in a great apartment down there and work in an exciting uh, industry and company. Go to shrinkster.com slash kh six to learn about that. Also, if you're a hotshot ASP.NET guru, there's a gig for you in Washington D.C. Uh, if you're located near or willing to be relocated to D.C., uh, go to shrinkster.com slash MMJ. Well, Richard, this is a very special show because our, our guest today is Jeff Atwood, who is the uh, the head blogger at Coding Horror, which is his blog. And uh, he, I'm just going to read his bio because it's in the first person, Okay. So this is about me. Who are you? I'm Jeff Atwood. I live in Berkeley, California with my wife, two cats, and a whole lot of computers. I was weaned as a software developer on various implementations of Microsoft's BASIC in the 80s, starting with my first microcomputer, the Texas Instruments TI-99-4A. Woohoo! I continued on the PC with Visual BASIC 3.0 and Windows 3.1 in the early 90s, although I spent significant time writing Pascal code in the first versions of Delphi. I am now quite comfortable in VBNet or C Sharp, despite the evils of case sensitivity. <laughs> I consider, and there's a link there. I consider myself a reasonably experienced Windows software developer with a particular interest in the human side of software development, as represented in my recommended developer reading list. Computers are fascinating machines, but they're mostly a reflection of people using them. 
In the art of software development, studying code isn't enough. You have to study the people behind the software, too. I currently work for Vertigo Software in Point Richmond, California. Vertigo is gracious enough to host this blog. You can take a virtual tour of my office if you like. Welcome, Jeff Atwood. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. This is a great show, and I'm glad to finally be a part of this. And actually, uh, one of my commenters predicted this would happen. I actually looked this up. In October 2004, uh, somebody posted a comment about, I just discovered your blog. You have been bookmarked. You should be on .NET Rocks. Yeah. I don't know if they've done a show on Human Factors. So way back in 2004. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to email this guy and say, hey, you know, your wish came true. I'm finally on .NET Rocks. I've arrived. Those were the Rory years, I think, 2004. That was when we were sort of a little bit surreal and a little comedic and two hours long. And so that, that may have been why. I'm not I sure. I it just took two years for us to get our act together enough to invite you. Maybe that's it. Well, you know, we had referenced... Um, you know, blog posts on your site before. And I know I had done on Hansel Minutes as well. So what is coding horror? What's this all about? So coding horror is, is was my 2004 new year's resolution. It started out like a lot of these things start with, you know, a sort of a half hearted new year's resolution to do something. And in this case, that something was a, a reading list. So uh, the place I was working at the time, I didn't really have a lot of other, developers to, to talk to that were, you know, sort of loved software as much as I did. Uh, for a lot of the people I worked with, uh, and not that there's anything wrong with this, you know, software was just their nine to five job. It wasn't really something that they took home with them, something that they uh, thought it was really interesting to study, but but I did. So I didn't really have any outlet, any avenue uh, to express a lot of that. So the sort of the genesis of the blog, and it's something I reference in my bio, is the recommended reading list. So I had all these fantastic books about software development that I was reading that were just, you know, to me, just these watershed events of, of my career as a, you know, erstwhile professional software developer. And uh, I just wanted really an avenue to, to, to talk about the book, to talk about software development uh, in a place where I could sort of have, I guess you might call it a, a reading club on the Internet, you know, uh, something I wasn't getting out of my current work experience. And I noticed that uh, Code Complete tops the list. Right. And I was really excited you guys had uh, uh, my my idol, if you will, uh, Steve McConnell on uh, a few weeks ago, a month ago. Uh, so that was a great show. I enjoyed that one immensely. Yeah. And uh, so, so in my reading list, I mean, I won't belabor the whole list, but I think there's really three, maybe four books, depending on how you look at it, that, that I find very uh, helpful, like to the point that I, I wish everyone I worked with on software had really read these books. Uh, I think they're really that important. Code Complete being the main one, of course. Uh, and then Krug's Don't Make Me Think. I was which just going to mention that as the second. That's a great yep. book. Yep, yep. I also have Mythi- Mythical Man Month in there, that's, but that's more of historical interest. I think it's a great book, and I think it's the only truly classic book in software development you know, the, the sort of the granddaddy of any software book is Mythic, Mythical Man Month. Um, I, you know, it, but it, it, at this point, it's more his, of historical interest. It's not going to really help you practically day to day. And I think um, you said you made the point here in your blog as well, which is the power of this book is that it's still relevant after all these years. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And getting back, I think, to, to the human factors, you know, computers change so rapidly. And that, that's what attracts a lot of people to the field is, 
you know, it's this field where everything is changing all the time. So if you don't like what's happening now, just wait five years and almost everything will be different. But the one factor there that really won't be different is, is the people. Uh, the, the way people work won't change very much in five years. So that's sort of the one constant. And I think as I've sort of grown older and more experienced, if you will, as a software developer, I found that more and more the things that I find interesting are the, the people things because they're the only things I can invest time in that will still pay dividends, you know, five and ten years uh, down the road. So that's, that's why Krugs Don't Make Me Think is an excellent one. You know, it's basically about people's behavior and usability. Uh, and Code Complete, although it's, you know, a book about, you know, how to write software, it has huge, huge chapters on, like, personal character and just, uh, you know, things you would think were out of scope for, for a software developer. But McConnell yeah. found them to be very relevant. And it's just about, you know, the people behind the software had this huge, profound imp- impact on, you know, how long the software takes to write, uh, how good the software is, the team dynamics, all those things uh, play a huge role in software, are arguably more important than even the technology that you choose. The comic strip on your uh, on your blog under Don't Make Me Think perfectly illustrates that point. Right. Yeah. Web design funnies. That that's a great one um, because I've sat in meetings exactly like that where you know it's sort of a last man standing filibuster on I believe we have to do it this way. No, I think we should do it this way. And you know, there's really no data backing any of these assertions up. It's just you know the really sad thing is nothing really gets done because people aren't thinking about, you know, again, software engineering, you know, let's, let's make decisions based on data. <laughs> if we can't decide which way to go, then just, uh, you know, let's do a little research and get some data points. It's kind of like a, an investment club I was in once, you know, where nobody wanted to do any research. People would come in with, you know, doing the, the analysis of a particular stock and nobody would pay attention. People would fall asleep. And then, you know, Somebody would just pipe up, I think we should buy this. Everybody, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no data at all. <laughs> it's all right. feel. It's all like, you know, who's got the who's got the loudest voice in the room kind of thing. Yeah, and it's depressing that it comes to that. But I think it's, you know, software development is is in software engineering in general is, is a very immature field. You consider the the birth of the personal computer uh was basically in in the early seventies, maybe the late sixties. So you know, you're looking at a pretty short time span there for the entire, really, microcomputer as we know it. And then software development is even less mature than that. So I think part of this is just, you know, evolving everybody up sort of the, the evolutionary ladder of, of software and, and actually turning it into an engineering field. I mean, I don't think it'll ever be like, you know, the classic example of building a bridge where you have, you know, physics and these other bedrock assumptions that you can always count on. Uh, things are changing too rapidly, but I do think there's a lot of opportunities to sort of go back and actually treat it like a legitimate engineering field. Well, what did you think about Cooper's book, uh, The Inmates Running the Asylum? That's on your list. I I kind of like the whole idea of it. It was interesting. Um, the, one of the, you know, his main manifesto in there is that users don't know what they want. And uh, you know better than a user of your software what good software design is. Right. Yeah, Cooper's books are a little tough. I mean, I, I love Alan Cooper. I think, you know, he's sort of the granddaddy of Visual Basic. There's always that weird relationship there where yeah. he did the initial prototypes of what became Visual Basic and presented it to uh, Bill Gates, which is fascinating, a little bit of history. But I think really with Cooper, he, he can be a little bombastic in terms of the points he's trying to make. Yeah, um, I sort of agree with you. Yeah, I, I would say roughly half of a Cooper book is going to be like genius. 
And the other half is going to be kind of stuff like, eh, you know, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, it's interesting to talk about it. So I think you have to bear that in mind when you read Cooper's books. Um, I, I do love him, though, and, and there's a reason that, that they're on the list, because he's got a great, very user-centered uh, focus uh, yeah. that I think really helps a lot I, of developers. I thought About Face was a better book. Uh, because it really focused on actually building a decent UI and the kind right. I've really never let go of his concepts of the different kinds of apps of the, you know, the sovereign app versus the sort of sidebar types and so forth. That to me, when I read it years and years ago, really crystallized the thinking around, yeah, different apps in different roles where people are, ha- you know, a sovereign app is the kind of app that somebody's willing to learn the shortcuts on. I know that, that those were very fundamental thoughts about how we want our, our applications to behave and what you're allowed or should be doing as a developer uh, based on the role that app plays to the user. So the title of your blog, Coding Horror, suggests that you have some stories of coding horror that maybe you shared on your blog, uh, maybe you haven't. Uh, well, coding horror is kind of a little bit of an inside joke. Um, it's one of the, you know, that that's, a sidebar illustration from from Code Complete, the original version of Code Complete, which I think is from like ninety three or ninety four, and uh, I have to talk a little bit about the book and the influence that book had on me as as sort of a, a, a young developer. So I graduated from college in ninety two and uh, sort of entered the field at that point in terms of you know being paid to write software. So I was quote unquote a professional, and uh, you know this is really kind of pre-internet. You know, the internet didn't really hit until maybe 95, 96. Hmm. So as a young sort of inexperienced developer working in small businesses where there's not really a lot of other developers to to look to, uh, to be mentors and so forth, I just sort of stumbled across this book. There's this, I was actually living in Denver at the time. There's this great independent bookstore called the Tattered Cover, uh, giant uh, independent bookstore. And uh, I actually found this book there and and, and it was just like revelatory because it was this whole book about being a professional software developer, written in this very, very, you know, friendly human voice, you know, not like, right. you know, the technical guru telling you the way things should be, but non-academic, rational, yeah. Clear, yeah, rational, clear voice. And all this data, you know, he done all this research, and, you know, that's one of my pet peeves is like, when we're talking about software, nobody usually has any data to back up, you know, the, the things that they're trying to talk about. And, yeah. and McConnell did. If you look at McConnell's book, there's all these data points where he's done all this research about what he's talking about. And he's not dogmatic about it. He's not like, well, I did the research and this is the answer, but right. you know, here's, here's the research I did. Here's what I think, you know, and, right. and here are my recommendations. And I just loved the book. And I, I think more than any other book, I call it, you know, the joy of cooking for software developers. Mm-hmm. Um, Very good. It's just, it's just a, a way to go back to the well and say, hey, you know, I, I love software and I'm really interested in doing it, you know, the right way uh, as a professional. Um, and, and that to me is, is, what code complete is, is about. And, and this, the revision I think is, is even better. It's a really significant revision that he came out with in 2004. Uh, so if you have the older version, I do recommend upgrading, if you will, to version 2.0 of the book. I'd just like to point out the joy of cooking is sort of like the Bible for the Julia Child generation, the fifties yeah. yeah, and the sixties. And, 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 and the, 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 the word choice is very intentional there where, where I do believe there's a certain aspect of, you know, enjoyment you have to get out of writing software to really be good at it. You have to, you know, immerse yourself in it uh, and enjoy it. So uh, reading the book, you know, was just this big event in my professional life. Uh, and one of the most striking things about the book is that coding horror illustration. Every, I swear, every time I saw that on the page, I would chuckle because 
not because of other people's code, but because of my own code. Yeah. To me, <laughs> the, the minute the minute you're an amateur developer until yeah. you realize that everything you write sucks. Sucks. Basically. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, then, I can't believe I wrote that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so the minute you realize that, then you've crossed the threshold. Now you're a professional developer because you realize that you are your own worst enemy almost right. all the time. And and half of being a you know a good, competent software developer is just realizing that you're gonna make just tons and tons of mistakes. Learn to refactor. This yeah. is what we're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah. it's like a lifestyle, you know. Yeah. Coding horror is a lifestyle. It's it's your own code. It's not other people's code. Uh, it's really your own code. So that's why I like it. It's sort of a clever uh, in-joke about that. You must have also had this experience where, you know, pe- you do code reviews on other people's code and, uh, you know, knowing what you know, you, you find these issues just like you would find with your own. And uh, sometimes it's tough for some developers to, you know, to have that come to Jesus meeting about, oh, uh, you're doing it wrong here. Let's just fix it and move on. Right, right. And then the whole aspect of, you know, humility where, you know, you are not your code. So being able to say, hey, you know, I write a lot of code and a lot of my code really sucks. You know, you're going to divorce yourself from the I am my code mindset, which is, I think, very negative. I agree. Um, So so it's good to sort of have a sense of humor about what we're doing and, you know, our our relative competence levels. I mean, nobody uh, is really that good at software development. There's maybe like a handful of people in the world that are real geniuses at it. And the rest of us are just, you know, kind of struggling along, uh, you know, doing the best that we can. And I, I think that's another aspect of it as well. I, I, I think you said it right, Jeff. It's the humility. I was just thinking about, you know, another angle on being a professional software developer is being able to do a code review of somebody else's code where your comment is something other than this sucks. Yeah. You know, to actually see the value in the work and, and to appreciate how that person was thinking when they created those things. Uh, it's, it's, it's the humility to recognize that, yeah, there's more than one way to be successful at that. And my way is not always right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is where you get into talking to a compiler versus talking to another person. And I think a lot, for a lot of software developers, um, you know, they got into the field because they're very, very good at technical things and maybe even a little introverted. I mean, certainly that was true of me. Um, so, so in a way, the computer is like an escape from people, particularly in the early days of the Internet, although I think this is really, really changing as the Internet becomes very pervasive. The concept of a computer, like disconnected from other people, becomes very alien, which is odd because if you grew up with a computer in the early days, it was totally about isolation, <laughs> you know, yeah. and escaping into this world of the computer where, you know, one is one and zero is zero, and there's nothing in between. There's no gray areas. Uh, so I think a lot of and what my recommended reading list is about is is really the development of the non-technical stuff, the being able to 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 work with another developer and do a code review without like just ripping them to pieces accidentally. You know, where you're you're acting like a compiler, you're saying this failed, this failed, this failed. Your code is a failure. <laughs> um, so and and another another book. So I'm really just going over the top five is Peopleware. So Peopleware is really this this another watershed book in software development, it's cited all over the place. And, and I think really for good reason, because it really hones in on, uh, you know, team dynamics and how, how people interact will have a, a bigger impact on your project than, uh, you know, your choice of technology or almost anything else on the project. I know McConnell has a book on software estimation, and he said that the three most important factors uh, in estimating, you know, how long it's going to take to build whatever it is, 
that you're building are are number one the size of it. So you know if you're building this you know the space shuttle, then it's it's going to kill you. Uh, but right under that, uh, in terms of things that can impact your project and and how long it will take, was uh, team dynamics, basically personalities and people. So that's the number two factor on any project uh, right after the size. So it's really important to have a handle on it. And I think for a lot of developers, another one of the motivations for the blog was to get sort of better at communication with with people and, and not the compiler. And, you know, sort of forcing myself to, to write blog entries uh, sort of helped me crystallize my thoughts and, and sort of, you know, improve my communication skills. So, you know, I believe that's tremendously important. And, and a lot of times my hope is when people are reading the blog, they're motivated to basically, you know, start their own blogs and, and start doing some of these things and getting out there and, you know, amplifying what they're doing on the code side with some complementary skills uh, in terms of communication with their own team, with the outside world, with, with whoever. It's just, it's so essential. And uh, for a lot of software developers, I certainly have met many that were technically super competent, really more, far more competent than I was. But I would have more of an impact on the team or the project because I was just better at sort of expressing, you know, my position in a reasonable way and just communicating with the team. And I always thought that was kind of sad. And I really urge software developers to explore that. The number of times the advice I've given to a really frustrated software developer in a fairly large organization, the only advice I gave was write it down and email it. Put it in a Word document because it's 10 times more valuable in a Word document as an attachment as it is in an email. Just the thoughts you've got, the concerns you have, that persistence of that document is incredibly powerful. And it really comes down to just kind of communicating your thoughts. The commitment you make to write that stuff down in a coherent form so that somebody has some hope of understanding it and then handing it around makes it almost unavoidable that you're going to get communication back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, too, it's something you have to practice. Just like you would, you know, as a practicing software developer, you know, you gain skill incrementally over time as you do things. Uh, it's the same thing with communication. I mean, if, if you're not writing anything down, uh, you're not really going to improve sort of your writing muscles. You know, you have to sort of make a commitment to, to, to do it to, to get better at it. Uh, and, and I think... For, for so many software developers, they just fall into that, I hate to say rut, but it really is kind of a rut of where they become deep, deeply, deeply technical. Um, and that's really not professionally what's going to help them. Uh, what would help them more is to have some complementary communication skills to go along with those, you know, good technical chops. Uh, and, and, and certainly with my blog, I sort of made a commitment to, to originally it was to do one post every uh almost every day, but I realized pretty quickly that was a difficult goal. And now my goal is to do one post for every weekday, not the weekend, but so five posts a week. And certainly when people are starting out with blogging or they're interested in this idea of improving their communication skills, that's one of the, I think, the most important pieces of advice is to make a commitment to actually some number of posts per week, whether it's one or you know, even one a month or something reasonable. Uh, but but just you got to practice it. You're not going to tell a developer, hey, you know, write this down in a coherent email. Uh, what you're going to get back is probably not what you had in mind. Um, so it, it's something that you know I think developers need to uh, cultivate and practice. 
You know, when comparisons of web development components come into play, vendors start tossing in cliches like complete tool set of controls, superior performance, empowering users, and hosts of other buzzwords. But at the end of the day, what matters most to you, the developer? For our friends at Telerik, the answer boils down to simply getting your job done, like saving precious time by customizing stubborn controls at design time or skinning new applications in no time. And how about no browser compatibility issues? That's a big one. Take the Telerik Ajax offering, for example. The product was designed to quickly get you up and running with this new yet complex technology, and it just works. Forget about writing tricky JavaScript. Forget about making end-to-end modifications to your application. What's best is that you can count on a wide range of resources, sample apps, tutorials, active forums, and, of course, Telerik's renowned support team. After all, there is a reason why 89% of Telerik's customers choose to renew their subscriptions. Experience that for yourself by testing a trial version of the most reliable UI suite for ASP.NET at www. T-E-L-E-R-I-K dot com. Jeff, you've been writing in your blog lately about uh, things like Reddit and Twitter and patents. Um, there's some interesting stuff there. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I find with, with my, my interest is that I, I really just love computers in, in the blog is kind of like my love letter, if you will, a very public love letter. To, to the computer, to software, and, and really the entire ecosystem around it. So I'm what you might call more of a generalist, where I have a lot of broad interests. Like, I'm really interested in the hardware. Uh, I like build my own computers and so forth. And that's not really for everyone, but it's just something that I find very interesting in that, you know, it's a part of the system. And uh, I really enjoy exploring uh, all those pieces. Uh, and, and certainly, I, I guess this has worked really well because I've, I've built up this, this rather surprisingly large audience. And, and I think... Being a generalist, uh, I think, appeals to, to more people. That, and this is probably a repetition of the theme earlier, where when you come very narrowly technical, um, it, becomes, it becomes difficult to, to, to sort of expand your base and, and really talk to people that you know, may not be as technical as you. Um, so, so certainly it's, it's a lot of topics that I, that I really like to explore. So uh, one of my greatest hits, you might say, uh, is this article, uh, Separating Programming Sheep from Non-Programming Goats. Okay. So a lot of times when I write blog entries, I don't really know what the reaction is going to be. I've written blog entries that I thought were going to be you know, really interesting to people, and they were essentially ignored. And then on the other hand, I've written just little pieces where you know, I felt like, ah, i got to post something to the blog. You know, I would just write something up in two hours, and it becomes this sort of huge internet. I don't, let me be careful how I say this. A huge internet phenomenon in the sense that a very popular post on my blog. Right, right. Uh, maybe not world famous, if you will, but just a, a lot of hits, a lot of comments, a lot of trackbacks and things like that. And this, this post was, was one of those things where I was like, oh, this is kind of mildly interesting. And I just wrote it up. And the premise of, of this post is really just re- recapping a study uh, that was done uh, in academics where people are teaching software development. And the, this group of researchers uh, sort of expressed this frustration. And, and actually, the quote here is that between 30% and 60% of every university computer science department's intake fail the first programming course. So you're talking about you know, students that are saying, hey, you know, maybe I want to learn software development. Uh, so they ex- express some level of interest in software development. And more than 
almost half of them on average, you know, sort of wash out and, and really don't rock programming for some reason. And it's really frustrated the, the, the people teaching because they see this pattern repeated like pretty much the entire time they're teaching software development. And I thought this was really just fascinating because this paralleled sort of what I'd seen in my professional life where you have some developers that just get it, you know, they live it, they understand it, for whatever reason they just, you know, they jibe with software development. And then some that just really don't get it, you know, like I had certainly seen this professionally and I was sort of intrigued that, you know, before you even become a professional software developer, there's this huge divide of just people who get it and people who don't get it. And it's kind of uh, staggering to me the idea that the first time you would program is when you saw a course in college to go program. But, I mean, all three of us are obviously the other species that program computers and programming were such a drive for us that we went we went and sought out that experience. You know, it wasn't part of the, the educational process that made us want to program. It was under, wanting to understand the machine. Scott and Scott Hanselman and I uh, talked about this and we referred to your uh, show uh, to your post about this, um, which was the FizzBuzz test. Uh, using FizzBuzz to find developers, and and it was you know why why can't programmers program? That was your your blog post, about right? Right. That. So, so that that's getting into you know people who would ostensibly apply for a software development job. So you would think these people have already crossed the, the chasm, right? They've they should theoretically understand how to program. Um, and by the way, I've shrinksterized the separating programming sheep from non-programming goats at shrinkster.com slash O5E, if anyone wants to read that. But yes, yeah, it's, it is amazing when pe- the, the, basically this premise of this uh, post is that people who would be applying for a software job were asked to do the FizzBuzz test where they just need to write a program that spits out a series of numbers and then for, I don't know, I can't remember exactly what the premise is, but certain numbers get a, a print it out as fizz, certain as buzz, depending on whatever it is. It's simple mod and division kind of stuff. And a whole series, of, most most programmers can't do it, basically. Right. Well, what I found shocking was that, you know, this is a very rudimentary test. I mean, this is like, say you were hiring truck drivers. So yeah. you, where's the gas pedal? Right. Where's the brake? I mean, you know, can you shift gears? I mean, not, you know, can you compete? complete uh, an obstacle course in your truck, but just do you even know how to operate a truck? And yeah. I just found it very appalling. And, and it was really echoed by a number of different people, uh, sort of in the blogosphere, if you will, that where they had seen this exact phenomenon, people coming in that really literally could not complete uh, FizzBuzz. And I thought, it, you know, going a little bit deeper that uh, the programming sheep and non-programming goats sort of give you sort of a sneak preview of, of why that happens. Um, and that the students... It was a very simple test they came up with to try to figure out if they could predict who was going to succeed and who was going to fail earlier. And it's a really simple test. There's there's an example uh, in the blog post, but it's basically all about assignment. It, it, it's about constructing a mental model, and it doesn't even have to be a correct mental model, but a coherent mental model of how assignment works just by looking at the commands. And the funny observation here that I found very rang extremely true for me was that you didn't have to be right, but you had to be able to form this very rigid, you know, authoritarian view of, of how assignment works, you know, and, and you had to be totally rigid, just like a computer is, you know, computers, you know, they don't care uh, what we're thinking, you know, they're, they're always going to mindlessly plod down whatever path it is they're going on. Uh, and the ability to put yourself into that mindset was so crucial to sort of being able to be a programmer. 
uh, was to accept the inflexibility of the computer. Um, and and I, I found that really fascinating. You know, one thing I've I've seen before when I put people on the spot is the Jeopardy effect. You know, where you're just you sort of freeze up and you can't see the forest for the trees because you're trying to overthink the problem. You know, you're thinking that somebody's throwing such a curveball at you that you can't possibly figure it out. So your nerves get all, you you know, you get all tense and nervous and stressful. And that just has a devastating effect on your ability to think. Um, I'm not cutting anybody any slack because, come on, fizz buzz. Easy. Yeah, it should be reflex. But, you know, right. And the funny part is I found developers who interviewed well and couldn't fizz buzz. And I found more hmm. developers that interviewed horribly and fizz buzz fine. Or I've had a guy who was just appalling in his interview. His resume is barely literate. And, and he, you know, it's remarkable he got as far as me, but I give him a coding problem and he rips it up like he lights. Suddenly he's yeah. on the whiteboard and he's all over it. I'm like, okay, I can deal with the social issues to get the talent. Right. 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 So I think that's great because that's exactly the divide that, that I hope that coding horror is about. It's about, you know, bridging that divide. People who are really good at coding, but just, you know, can't, you know, make it through an inter, an interper, the interpersonal skills required to an interview are just beyond them. Yeah. And then people, people who, and, you know, this is also a problem, people who are, you know, are good at talking about software development, but, you know, don't necessarily have the technical chops to actually do it. Um, you know, so you want to bridge that gap and have a balance of skills, I think, as a professional software developer. So the one thing that I've really uh, taken to heart, both as a, as a consultant helping other companies hire and for my own companies doing hiring, is I always ask with the resume, send me your favorite piece of code. And it, it taught me a bunch of things about a person right away. Uh, if they couldn't come up with a piece of code, they're probably not a programmer. Every programmer I've ever met that was, you know, was serious about programming has some code they love. But it was also the best possible icebreaker for even, for even the most socially uncoordinated developer. That piece of code they really like, when you get them to talk about it, you can see it in their eyes. You know, it just go off they go doing their thing. Yeah. You know, talking about their chunk of code. Plus, I had a chance to review the code ahead of time and say, reading that piece of code let me know a lot about them. Well, if you wrote this code, then you must know the following things. So then right. uh, my FizzBuzz test for them was then scripted around their code sample. I think that's a great strategy, and, and that makes a lot of sense because, you know, that gets back to the, the, the joy of cooking, right? I mean, if you don't enjoy the code, if you can't find it, I always found it weird. We would we would do a similar thing where we say, okay, send us a code sample to start with, and you sort of get all these this backpedaling of, oh well, all our code is proprietary. I can't really send you anything, and that always just seemed like such a giant cop out to me because you know when you write code, you know I said earlier, you know you are not your code, so there's this process of separating your ego from your code. But whenever you write code, that's like your baby. You know, I mean, if if you can't find code that you care enough about to just you know take it out and share it with, you know, some fragment of it with someone. Yeah, make it non-proprietary. That's such a deep problem that I, I would almost not want to interview somebody at that point if they couldn't find some code that they put together that they were actually excited about. And another thing that, that feeds into is, is one thing I like about the blogging strategy is the blog sort of becomes uh, your professional uh, business card, if not resume. Right. Right. And, and it, occasionally, you know, I, I do post code on my blog. So certainly anyone who's interested in what I do and the type of code I write should be able to find that pretty easily on my blog. So having a blog means you sort of have a professional calling card already out there. So, 
you know, and, and it's interesting, uh, when I started work at Vertigo, uh, one of the things I liked, one of the many things I like about Vertigo was that Scott Stanfield, our CEO, uh, actually read my blog prior to the interview. This is the first company that had done that, where, you know, I sent out my blog. It's like, okay, you know, here's my resume, here's what I do, and here's my blog. And Scott had taken the time to actually read through it and, and really liked it to the point that we had conversations about, you know, some of the topics that I had, had brought up on my blog. Jeff, let's. Can you pick a, a recent blog post that you felt uh, was really good, and can we get into the to the meat of it? Sure, sure. So I have a few that I, that I like, and uh, some of the more popular stuff that that. I, and as I said, it's hard to tell what's going to be popular, so you just kind of throw stuff out there, and then and some some hits and some doesn't. Uh, one that really seemed to resonate was uh, the Programmers' Bill of Rights. I don't know if you guys have seen this. I have so seen what, it. So what motivated this post was that. You know, at Vertigo, sort of I have two identities. I have sort of a, a Clark Kent Superman thing going on where, you know, with my blog, you know, I have sort of the secret identity, although it's not really secret anymore. A lot of people know about my blog. Uh, but for a long time, it, it felt that way. Um, and then in my day job, I actually do go out and interact with uh, other developers at companies outside Vertigo, uh, largely around Team System, Microsoft Team System. And it always pained me when I'd go out and I would see developers working in what I considered terrible, terrible conditions where they didn't even have the basic equipment to do their job correctly. Um, and, and, and I know this, depending on where you stand on, on you know, capital investments for software developers, you might not agree with this, but, but I think as much as we pay software developers, uh, it's crazy to send them out there without, you know, 10 grand worth of equipment that they're going to need to be truly effective. And yet I saw it like all the time, almost everywhere I went, it was like, you know, crappy mice, crappy keyboards, monitors that, you know, were, you know, 17 inch CRTs from like 1998 and things like that. So the bill of rights is essentially a list of just, you know, environmental things that are really easy to fix, you know, because a lot of development problems are hard, really hard to fix you know, team dynamics or the product you're writing on, does, you know, you're working on doesn't, doesn't make sense. <laughs> but these are yeah. things that you can throw money at and fix. And that's what I got so frustrated about. And, and just stuff like, I, you know, having two monitors, you know, in this day and age, right. I just, the, pro, the productivity vi- benefits of two monitors is, is, you know, I think indisputable and, and very inexpensive. Hmm. But I think there's a very fundamental message around equipment uh, and in, in general, which is this we value you message. You know, we're we're giving you the best possible gear because we think your success is important. You need to be va- You need to demonstrate that value. There's a uh, there's a mentality, however, especially in the you know from people who have worked their way up that you got to pay your dues. You know, if you can generate good code on crappy equipment, then you earn the privilege to have good equipment. I mean, that's sort of a an old school mentality. I think is what's happening there. Don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think paying your dues is, is different than having the proper equipment uh, to do your job. I, I think that's so fundamental. I, it really is truly a bill of rights. I mean, it's something where if you're a developer and you don't have these things, uh, I really think you should go in and demand it to whoever you know, calls the shots. I, I think it's, it's right. well within your rights to do that. Right. Two monitors is actually going to make you a better programmer. It's not a luxury. It's not for no, playing not quick. <laughs> Not at all. And in fact, they've done all these studies that show, you know, to me, it's, you know, overlapping windows, you know, as much as we talk about GUIs, the problem is overlapping windows are like this huge productivity tax. I mean, manipulating windows is pure excise. Yep. It's just not useful work. Straight up lost time. 
Yeah, straight up. I mean, exactly. I would easily believe that 10% figure that I've seen in the studies just based on 10% less time I spend dragging windows around, manipulating them, trying to make something visible because you just have more space. You know, you don't have to have overlapping windows. So, you know, again, I view that as just just very, very fundamental. And, And just, you know, having a reasonably fast PC, I think compilation time is wasted time. I mean, the, every second I have to spend staring at the uh, compiling dialogue is, you know, time that I'm, I'm not, I could be writing code. And, yeah. and the really thing is it kills you. It's, it's like death by a thousand 10 second delays. You know, you add up, <laughs> you add up those 10 second delays over time. And, you know, that's, you know, maybe 30 minutes of time. So, you know, it seems really small. It's like, Oh, what are you complaining about? You know, it would be five seconds versus 10 seconds. And, I, I think it's a forest and trees problem there where they're not seeing, you know, the cost of the computer is just nothing relative to the labor cost. It, it, it's, it's craziness. How about the situation in which uh, so, uh, a software developer who's making sixty dollars to $100,000 a year is paid to write a programming tool that clearly exists in the market for $500? You know, oh, right. You, I see this over and over again. And, and in my town, I mean, I don't have to... I can step out my front porch and see somebody that that's doing this and they burn, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on this guy to write a subpar programming tool that they could just as easily purchase. Right. Yeah, that's that's very frustrating. I know I've participated in projects like that where you just do the math. You take the number of people working on it, multiply by what you, you know, an average salary um, and you just, you know, divide that by the number of users you have. And it's just a staggering, staggering number where there's just no way that can actually make business sense. And, and I think, yeah, I've talked to the developers in this case, and they're like, well, I mean, I didn't have anything else to do. What? <laughs> what? How about taking a book and reading it? How about learning something? You don't have anything else to do. Right. Come on. You know, one of your ending points in the whole Bill of Rights thing was the quiet working conditions. My my mm. solution when I was the only developer in the office was I hung a, a sign on my door that was my called the programmer's productivity matrix and it was measured in interruptions per hour. <laughs> and optimal performance I discovered was point two five interruptions per hour. Wow. Right. So one interruption every four hours was my maximum to be a productive programmer. Right. And and I think it's it's great to highlight this stuff. And my hope is that people, you know, particularly people who are starting out in their careers as, as professional developers can read that and realize that, you know, I thought the phone the phone and the interruption were annoying, you know, but I, I have a fundamental right as a software engineer to, to ask for that stuff to, to be, you know, if not taken away entirely, it's toned way down. Um, you know, it, it's part of sort, of sort of learning the craft of software development is, is learning, you know, what tools do I need to actually do this stuff effectively and some basic stuff about expectations on, on working conditions. Now, on, on Carl's point of, of higher level, you know, does what you're working on actually make any sense? You know, that, that's a really deep problem. Um, I know, I think it's sad if you think about the number of projects you've actually worked on that actually resulted in, in shippable, useful software um, that made some impact on the world. I, I think, again, it's, it's depressing to, to, <laughs> to think about how little of, of the code you write actually results in something meaningful. Uh, you know, to, to even a really small subset of users, it's really challenging. So I, I think that's why, as as a craft, you know, as a person who practices the craft of software development, you have to enjoy the act of really creating software. I think that has to be enough reward 
in and of itself. I well, mean, and that's the dr- goal, right? I'm, I'm reminded of Billy Hollis who says, most programmers think their job is to write code. It's not. It's to provide solutions. Right. That's Absolutely. your job. Absolutely. And I think that's a big picture thing that takes, that takes a while for developers to sort of to sink in and they have to sort of marinate in it for a while and actually work on some failed projects. And I have another blog post where I talk about the importance of failure to software development because you have to realize that, that failure is sort of the default mode for software. Better or worse, statistically, most software projects fail. But I think that's okay. I think what you have to think about there is analyzing, like, why did they fail? You know, and again, the divide between amateur developer and professional developers realizing, hey, my code sucks. Um, similarly, on projects, you know, realizing that, you know, this pro- my project failed, but here's why it failed. Like, self-awareness is really what I'm all about. Um, and that at the code level, as well as at the project level, like, I felt like, you know, the retrospectives I participated in for the projects, even if I had to sort of force them on the powers that be, were very powerful because you got into like, well, why are we failing? What are we doing wrong? Rather than just going out and repeating those same failure modes, uh, it's what I call the Gilligan's Island problem. And it's, this is totally taken from Steve McConnell, by the way, I can't claim credit for this, is every you know, week there's some crazy new scheme to get off the island whether it's building some piece of software that already exists or just something that doesn't really make sense, ultimately. <laughs> and yet they, they go through and, you know, hilarity ensues. And at the end of the episode, they're stuck on the island, you know, for another week. So how can we really get off that island? And I think it's about self-awareness. Uh, it's about, you know, reading books. Like if your job is to be a project manager, um, what books have you read that, that sort of explain what a project manager actually does? Um, and, you know, going back to the recommended reading list. So are you referring to context? Are you referring to success through failure, which is uh, your post from May 24th, 2005? Uh, possibly. I, I have several on, on failure, <laughs> sadly. Okay. Um, but well, I, that, I think that, I just is, want to put out the shrinksters for these. Uh, that one is at shrinkster.com slash O five. I Oscar five indigo and the programmer's bill of rights is at Oscar five golf O five G. So I think failures are kind of like a badge of honor. I think, if someone could come in and tell me, well, you know, I worked on, you know, a bunch of projects, one was successful, and then I had a bunch that, that were failures. And, and here's why I think they failed. Um, I think that is much more uh, helpful than somebody comes in and says, you know what, everything I've worked on has been a spectacular success. You know, yeah, I, I just, number one, it's just, it doesn't seem, it doesn't jibe with my understanding of the industry. And, and two, you know, failure isn't, isn't necessarily an evil in and of itself. It's what you do with that that really uh, makes it work. And I think as a Preach software on, developer, th- there's, there's a tenacity that comes out of, I mean, you have to give up eventually, but you just have to be incredibly tenacious because computers ultimately are super frustrating. I mean, I, every day my computer defeats me in, in some small but important way, you know, in something <laughs> I'm trying to do. And it made and you it, agree with it by popping up a dialogue that made you say, okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so it's, you know, it's about the sort of the reality of failure. And it, it, we live in a highly, highly imperfect ecosystem. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, software development is a very young field still. I know it's crazy to think of that. And, and I, I think a lot of developers, particularly as they start to become older developers and get some years of experience under their belt, get the idea that, you know, well, this is how it's going to be. And I think the way you have to think of this is we're still in, you know, if you think of like, say, the history of the automobile, just to pick sort of a random comparison, we're still in probably like the 1940s, you know, where 
the story, the whole story has not even remotely been told on, on the history of software. So it's exciting because I think we have a part in, in I think, still the early history of software development. Um, and that's why, you know, with Coding Horror, it's exciting to me to be, be a part of that and to think that people are, you know, actually reading what I'm writing and thinking about some of these issues and, and how to evolve as a software developer. Jeff, um, do you have the, kids? Uh, not yet. Not yet. We're kind of working on that. So one of the one of the things that um, I find the more enlightened parents who have the smarter kids have um, just among people I know uh, is to let them fail, to set up a safe environment, to let them try things and fail and to let them know that um, that that's how you learn. And, you know, a kid can learn more from a broken dish than the parents constantly trying to say, watch out, watch out for that, watch out for this, watch out for that. Um, Absolutely. It's just something that I've picked up on, and, and it, there's a parallel here because ultimately raising kids is sort of the ult- ultimate software project, you know? Right. So, so going back to your original question was, you know, like you've seen development teams working on just ridiculous projects. Um, that can still have value. You know, if the developers in that can realize what cycle they're in and and next time you know, hopefully recognize that and uh, uh, mitigate it, then, then I think ultimately it's a step forward, even if that product is, you know, ultimately kind of a waste of time for everybody involved, as long as they've learned from it and involved as, as sort of software engineers. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the lesson you have to take out of it. And you have to, you know, enjoy what you're doing uh, so that there's always that bedrock to go back to. Um, Jeff, tell us about the post, has Joel Spolsky jumped the shark? <laughs> right. We've brought up jumping the shark a couple of times in, because of this. Yeah, sure. No no problem. And uh, first, let me put a disclaimer out there. I think Joel Spolsky is a brilliant, brilliant writer. And I think almost everything he has to say is worth reading. Um, what really motivated this post was there was just this perceived disconnect between sort of the, the things Joel was saying that, that software developers should do. And, you know, here's how we run, you know, uh, Fog Creek Software, which is Joel's company. Um, and then sort of some of his later posts, he started sort of peeling back the curtain a little bit on some of the stuff they were doing, and it, it really didn't seem to jibe with a lot of the advice he had given other developers. And, and I just was a little frustrated by that to where I felt like Joel had been giving this great advice and then basically not following his own advice. And well, it it, the whole wasabi thing was incredible, and your line was perfect. You couldn't possibly have heard it, but that was the sound of 50,000 programmers' heads simultaneously exploding. <laughs> right, uh, right. like we invented our own language. I mean, this is you know a canonical example of what not to do. I mean, if a developer ever came to you, uh, you, you guys, said, hey, you know what I think we should do? I think we should write our own language. Right. I mean, when is that ever <laughs> the right answer? I mean... I think Joel had some reasonable reasons for doing it at the time, but I think they quickly became legacy baggage. And it's just, it's frustrating. And I'll tell you why it's exactly why it's frustrating because if someone as smart and talented as Joel can fall into that trap, it just shows you how easy it is to make, you know, how are us regular mortals going to survive? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, Joel's a smart guy. He'll obviously ride this out, and I'm sure it's not a problem for his company. But even in in Joel's post, you can sort of see some hesitancy when he talks about it. He's kind of not, you know, he's not basically acting like Joel at that time. He's kind of throwing it out there and kind of hesitating, and that's not Joel. Joel is very much like, here's what I'm doing. (laughs) Here's why it's awesome. 
You know? yeah. Let me just and, clarify a couple things. First of all, the post in question is at shrinkster.com slash O5J. And uh, Jump the Shark, tell us what that is a reference to. So Jump the Shark is uh, sort of has become a meme. I think it's a reference to a Happy Days episode. I didn't actually see right. this episode. I was never a big Happy Days fan. But I guess it was later in the life of the show. And I guess uh, at one point, the Fonz, a you know, the Fonz, yeah, <laughs> actually jumps, somehow gets on a motorcycle wearing shorts, which... The Fonz wearing shorts is already weird. Uh, and to make it even weirder, he actually, you know, jumps over this tank that contains a shark on his motorcycle. So it's become shorthand for has become irrelevant. Like, yeah, that was, the, that was into, the beginning of the end for Happy Days. That's when the show began to tank. Yep, you know. yep. You're doing something so crazy so atten- just to get attention that you've kind of forgotten about your core, your core competencies as, as a show. And I think that's somewhat true of Joel, although, although again, I have tremendous respect for Joel, and, and I always will. I think all Joel's book, for example, is excellent. And in fact, I'm about to add uh, his UI book uh, to the recommended reading list. So uh, I, I'm a reluctant critic of Joel, um, and, and I, I wish he would write more, too. I think over time, he's kind of gotten away from writing a lot of content. And I think that's too bad because Joel is really a brilliant writer. And one of the things that interesting about Joel is Joel has... Uh, and I don't have the citation for this, but Joel was talking about the value of functional specs. And it was interesting because when Joel was talking about, okay, you just got to write functional specs that people want to read. You know, that's very easy to say when you're Joel Spolsky because Joel Spolsky is, is Spolsky is probably one of the most talented software writers writing. You know, he's super entertaining. I mean, right. I could give his writing to my wife, you know, and she doesn't care about this technical stuff, but she would be entertained by Joel's writing and she would read it all. And he's um, written some great stuff. I mean, just we got to keep saying that. He's written some great yeah. stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, but the, the sort of the, the myopia of Joel is that when he says, oh, you just got to write functional specs the way I would write them, you know, <laughs> this is incredibly difficult. I mean, if the bar. <laughs> is you have to be as good of a writer as Joel Spolsky to make functional specs that are actually people want to read, then you're never going to get there. You know, and I think that's, again, just Joel not being able to see outside Joel, unfortunately. Um, it's great advice, but it, it's very particular to, to, to Joel. Well, Jeff, we're coming down to the end of the show. Is there anything uh, you want to plug or say hi to or shout out about or talk about a toy or something you've seen on the web recently? No, I don't think so. I just want to thank everybody that reads my blog. It's become this really great community, and and I want to thank the people that comment there. And uh, a lot of the comments that people leave really do feed into my thinking uh, on the blog. Um, It's not as if I'm sort of putting a message out there and then, you know, I I have these comments that I kind of ignore, but those messages affect my thinking. And the whole point of doing this is to have that two-way dialogue to, to actually understand a lot of stuff going on in software development. I certainly do not have all the answers and I really appreciate uh, everyone who participates on the blog. And we really appreciate having you on the show. It's, uh, yeah. It was good talking to you. I enjoyed it. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. <music> .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes 
in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 